women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants to hear your Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about change and the women who drive it forward before, during, and after their time here on the Princeton campus. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983. And my guest today is Maribel Hernandez-Riveras, a graduate alumna from 2010. Maribel received her master's degree in public affairs from the Woodrow Wilson School, then a law degree from NYU. She clerked for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and had a leadership role in the New York City Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs. Today, she's district director for Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And Maribel, it's very, very good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I have to say, I, I left out probably half of your resume for a reason. It's so long. There's, <laughs> you, you've done so many fascinating things. But it's just obvious, just looking at that, that you're a woman with a mission. Uh, you're really on a fast uh, road to something important. And I think a lot of that is tied up with your own personal story. So I hope you don't mind if I ask you to tell us that story, to tell me where you're, where you're from and why you decided to go into law first and, and this particular kind of law. For sure. So um, what really defines my, my trajectory is my immigrant identity. So I came to the U.S. when I was 13. Uh, when I was much younger, I don't know the age, my dad left for the U.S. Um, so I don't remember how old I was. I was a kid because I was in, still in elementary school. Um, but what I do remember clearly is when he gave me a kiss. I think it was the middle of the night because he woke me up. Uh, he said goodbye, and then he left. And then after that, there were a few years that I was without my father. Um, and that really marked me. Uh, we couldn't speak to him often because we didn't have a telephone in our house. Mm -hmm. And we also didn't have the money to be making those phone calls. So I remember when I saw him years later when we came to the United States to see him, we came to the U.S. and I was met by a man. So I obviously thought it was my dad. <laughs> so I ran to him and I gave him a hug. Mm -hmm. And I said, Dad. And he said, I'm not your dad. Mm -hmm. Your dad is at work. So, you know, I remember feeling ashamed of not knowing my dad. And then there were, I came here at the age of 13. Yeah. I came to Houston, Texas. I didn't speak any English. So I went into English as second language classes. And then from there on, I was undocumented for many years. I didn't know what my destiny was going to be. Yeah. Uh, I used to think, well, if the worst that happens is I learn English, that's great because yeah. <laughs> I can always go back to Mexico and work at the airport and carry people's bags. But because I speak English, they'll give me a good tip. <laughs> you know, Such an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always thought about it that way. So I didn't know whether I would get into college because I was undocumented. I actually, even before that, I was super lucky to get recruited by Phillips Exeter Academy. Mm -hmm. uh, they went a very to elite prep school, uh, for anybody who doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> In op it opened so many doors for me. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that I didn't have to worry about whether my parents could make the rent, mm -hmm. whether they could have, w we could ha have food, or whether we could pay for the electricity. I had everything. Well, you say you got recruited. How did that happen? How did they find you in Houston, Texas? Yeah, so now I know how it works. So they go nationwide looking for underprivileged kids, and they visit many schools. They don't visit the same school this, uh, you know, over and over again. So my school hadn't been visited for five years. Hmm. That was the year they decided to go to my school. And so they contacted my, my middle school counselor and said, can you choose some kids to listen to this presentation? So I started sixth grade 
in ESL, mm -hmm. English as a Second Language classes. Then I went seventh grade pre-honors. So by then I was in the honors classes. So I was chosen. Uh, so I, I was chosen to listen to the presentation. And I heard the presentation and I'm like, well, this is amazing. They spoke about scholarships. Now you should know that when I was in Mexico, I went to public school, I got a scholarship in public school. But my experience was that it was a scholarship from the Mexican government, uh -huh. and the person who kept the money was the principal. It uh -huh. never, got never got to my to the family, family, never got to us. So that was my experience with scholarships. So when I listened to the presentation from Exeter, they said this school costs $25,000, oh and my. they tell me about all these amazing things that they do, and we have scholarships. I didn't believe them. Uh -huh. So when it was time for a Q&A, they asked, does anybody have any questions? Now, everybody there was students. There were no parents. It was just the students. Uh, nobody raised their hands, so I did. Uh -huh. And I said, well, you're telling me about the scholarships. Can you tell me more? Because uh -huh. <laughs> I don't really believe it. So we exchanged um, about scholarships, and then it was then that the recruiter asked my counselor and said, you know, we want to speak to her father. Mm -hmm. And then he said, we want to speak to her parents. And so they engaged in a very heavy recruitment effort to the point that I remember on Christmas, I, I was in beginner orchestra, so we had, you know, our, our uh, Christmas concert. So the recruiter went to the Christmas concert because he knew he was going to meet my dad there. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yes, um, because it was a whole effort of trying to convince us, right? Because mm -hmm. I'd never heard of Exeter. I didn't know what boarding school was. From our perspective, you go to boarding school when you're bad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh, so they engaged in a really amazing recruitment effort. And in the, in the end, I decided to go, and it, it changed my life yes. forever. I mean, you went on from there to Harvard. Yes. And then from there to Princeton. Yes. And then, as we've mentioned, to NYU after that. Yeah. Uh, so quite, I mean, you know, my goodness, um, a poster child in a <laughs> sense. Um, for the the immigrant experience or the our 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 our, our mythology about about the immigrant experience in America, but it's not the immigrant experience that most immigrants have. Yeah, well, I, I think it goes to show there's so many different factors that define your immigrant experience, right? One of them being luck. You know, I yeah. was lucky that that year that recruiter went to my school. Yeah. Another is a ton of people. I had a ton of mentors. I have had my whole life mm -hmm. a ton of mentors from the time I stepped into the U.S. Till this day, I am very grateful to my ESL teacher mm -hmm. because what she would do is she would stay with me after school uh, and teach me English, teach me the pronunciation. That was the hardest part, uh, the difference between boat and boat, <laughs> you know, and it was, and her name is Miss DeLabio, uh -huh. and labio means lips, uh -huh. so I would look at her labios, and you know, like, how do you do the B and the V, and <laughs> it was just so hard, but not only that, she also would pick me up during uh, the weekend, she, well, she introduced me to the chess team, mm -hmm. and so she would pick me up from my house so that we could, so we could go to the chess tournaments, mm -hmm. and because of that, I won trophies, but if, if I hadn't had somebody to take me, sure. I would not have been able sure. to have that experience. She also, I remember she was the first person to hook me up with a babysitting job. Uh -huh. um, so she did a lot for me, you know. So, but from my ESL teacher, I mentioned my middle school counselor, a lot of people have been there for me. So in terms of being a poster child, I think it's really important to remember that there's many immigrants who work hard. There are many immigrants who really try the best they can, but they might not have those opportunities. I was super lucky to have yeah. those opportunities. Yeah. You tell another story um, about your father, uh, because I think it influenced your decision. It happened while you were here at Princeton, and it influenced, actually, it seemed to be a pivot point in your life. I wonder um, if you could 
tell that story. Definitely. Uh, so, you know, when I came to the U.S. and then I started having all those opportunities, I started asking myself, well, what am I going to do with this privilege that I'm acquiring, right? Um, and, and there were so many things on the table. So I remember when I was in college, I learned about um, investment management. It, Investment banking, sorry, investment banking. And I did two internships there because I've never heard of it. And yeah. I'm like, whoa, and everybody wants to do it. And yeah. so there's this opportunity, this so let's rich do it. Rich life ahead if we do these sorts of things. <laughs> and so I did it, but that wasn't where my heart was. Um, and so then I kept thinking, what am I going to do? But even throughout the whole process, my immigrant identity was very strong. Uh, because what I mentioned is when I applied to college, I applied to 10 colleges, even though I had top grades, top exam, t- test scores, et cetera, because I didn't know who was going to let me mm-hmm. in. Uh, and it, as it turned out, the first letter that I received was from a public institution saying, well, unless you can show us that you have a social security number and you can pay, we can accept you because public institutions don't have the financial aid right. to give to people who are not here as, you know, documented. Right. Right. And so, you know, that was the first answer I got. And I said, okay, well, we'll see what happens. But then, again, lucky, um, I got into Harvard and I got into all these Ivy League institutions where they said, we have plenty of money. Yeah. We don't care about what your status is. We will help you. And we don't have those limitations. So when I was in college, I did my thesis on undocumented immigration because I was trying to process what that meant and trying to be able to speak about it, not just from a personal experience, but also from an academic experience. Um, and so then I came here. My dad all along was undocumented. And all along, I kept thinking, you know, what if something were to happen? So I came to the Woodrow Wilson School, in fact, because I wanted to change immigration immigration policy. And my first year at the Woodrow Wilson School, I actually led a march around campus. It was 2005, and at that moment, uh, there were a lot of immigration marches around the country. And I was here in this very privileged environment, and I said, I have to do something. And so if all I can do is march around Princeton, well, that's what we're going to (laughs) do. And so we did. Um, And then after that, I was trying to choose between doing... Uh, domestic, doing immigration policy or doing development. Because the other thing in my head was, well, I'm aware of the brain drain, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have people coming from other countries, but what if those people were able to go back to their country and and help their country so that Mm -hmm. we don't have uh, as many hardships? Um, So I came to Princeton for one year, and then I took a year out to go work in Mozambique for the Clinton Foundation. And I was was trying to figure out, okay, am I going to do development Mm -hmm. or am I going to do immigration? Um, And when I was in Mozambique, my father passed. Um, And the way he passed really marked my experience. And so what happened was my younger brother enlisted out of high school to go to the U.S. Navy. And so at that moment, my brother was... Uh, shipped off to Japan with the U.S. Navy. So my dad drove my brother from Texas to Norfolk, Virginia, to see him off. He was super proud of what my brother was doing. So my my brother left. Then my, my dad was driving back from Norfolk, Virginia to Texas. Um, and on the drive down in South Carolina, he got into a car accident. Uh-huh. He got into a car accident and he died. Um, he died two days before my birthday. The way we learned about it, wasn't because any of the officials called us. The way we learned about it was because my dad that weekend, Mm -hmm. he was a handyman, he had hired a young man to work with him. 
And so that young man, when my dad didn't show up, called him to figure out what was happening. And so he picked up, he called, and the person who picked up the phone on the other side was the owner of the junkyard. The junkyard. And he said, I'm sorry to tell you, but the driver of this car has passed. So then that person let us know, well, let my brother who was in Texas know, and then he called me, and he said, you know, did dad call you for your birthday? And I said, no, he didn't, and that's weird. Um, and he said, well, I don't want you to freak out, but we think something bad might have happened. However, because none of the authorities have called us, maybe that's not the case, right? Maybe there's, maybe there's something wrong here, so don't worry. We're going to go to South Carolina and figure it out. So they went to South Carolina, and the first thing that my brother and my sister-in-law were met with was no hablo espanol. Mm-hmm. And so immediately making all sorts of assumptions about my family, where my family, of course, speak, speaks English, and then they wouldn't turn over my dad's driver's license, which they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wouldn't turn over all of his information. And so when you think about it, or when I think about it, I don't know what was going through their minds. Like, I can only guess. But what I, can te- what I can tell you is I know they could have picked up that phone, right? Yeah, sure. The, the highway patrol could have done it. Yeah. The police department could have done it. The morgue could have done it. There were so many. The, the ambulance could have done it. There were so many players here who could have just picked up that phone. And the last person who had spoken to my, to my dad, in fact, had been my mother. Mm-hmm. So it was that easy. Yeah. But say they couldn't find the phone. But, you know, the junkyard owner found the phone. So yeah. it was there. Say they couldn't find it. They had my dad's driver's license with an address. So they could have just figured out how can we contact the people who live in that residence. Yes, and they never did it. So to me, what that said was, at the very least, they could care less about that life that had been lost. And so it was very disempowering. Mm-hmm. It was very frustrating. And and, th- th- and here I was, somebody with a lot of privilege. By that point, I had already gone to Exeter, Harvard. I had done my first exactly. year at Princeton. Yeah. My brother was in the US Navy, and still we felt hopeless. And so it was at that moment that I said, it is too late for me to help my dad get his immigration status. But if I become an immigration attorney, I can help other people like him to not go through this hardship. So, you know, the take-home message, for there's so many take-home messages for that, but one of them is, for me, uh, about you recounting your trauma for the benefit of us, you know, for us to understand what's going on, is that it's sort of addressing, I think, um, a huge gap in the discourse in the nation today about immigration, and that is the, the personhood mm-hmm. of, of the people that we're talking about. And uh, I'm just wondering, I mean, do you feel that way? Do you feel the need to address that personhood and, and, and kind of like help people reimagine who we're talking about here. We're talking about fathers and we're talking about children and we're talking about, you know, our brothers and sisters. Yeah, no, definitely. And and we have seen it more and more in this environment where the humanity of the immigrant is being taken away and so many other labels are, are being put on people. And I think that's purposeful because once you can forget about people as people, once you can forget that their fathers, their children, their mothers, and you can just think about them, you know, there's been really outrageous labels that have been placed. Once you can do that, then you forget about them and you can really say, well, that's that's not me. And then you, you don't relate to people. And one of the things that I've seen again and again, even with the people who are most anti-immigrant, once it is their nanny, once it is their friend's mother or, or, or the baker or, you know, somebody in their they community, know, yeah. they realize and they're like, oh, now I see what you mean. Yeah. And no, that person shouldn't be That's deported. a good person. Yes, yeah. that's a good person. And that's, that's where there's a lot of difficulty with this idea of like the good and the bad person mm. because we are all complicated beings. But it shouldn't be about is that a good person or is that a bad person. The point is that's a person. And we should care about them because they are a person. Yeah. 
And I tell, I can tell you, you know, immigration, like I said, not only that, that's where I come from, that's my dad's story, but even till this moment, uh, my husband is from Honduras. He has a status that is called temporary protected status. What that means is he came here when he was 18, and then he has been with temporary protected status for more than 20 years. That, that status was given by the U.S. government, which allowed him to work, which allowed him to be here in the United States. Under this administration, they have decided to end that status. So you have a lot of people who have TPS or had had TPS mm. who now have a date certain mm. by which they have to leave. Mm. So for my husband, that's January 5th, 2020. And just to think about people, so in his case, he, he came here when he was 18. He's now more older than 40. Um, he has a U.S. citizen child who's 13 years old. He has a U.S. citizen wife. He's a chef, a sous chef at a fancy restaurant in, in, in New York. So he's done his whole life here. You yeah. know, he came from Honduras with a fourth grade education. He now has his GED plus his culinary degree plus he's a sous chef. And none of that matters because we're not seeing people as family units. We're just seeing them as numbers that can be expended. Yeah, yeah. Well, you came, as you say, when you were 13 years old, which is, what, quite a number of years ago. Yeah. I don't know, 20, de- 20 years or something Blink. ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and your experience was relatively good, um, but it's different now. And I'm, I'm just wondering, you've been in the business of uh, talking to, working with immigrants all along. So I wonder if you can compare the new immigrants' experience now, and I don't mean just the legal thing, but I also mean why people are immigrating mm. now, why we're seeing these waves, what's driving them out of their home countries. Mm. How can you, com- what, how do you view your experience versus their experience? Yeah, so I definitely would say there's no one reason why people come, right? I, I don't want to claim that because there's so many reasons. Uh, but what we're seeing in terms of what the experience is like once you get on the ground, it is very just nationwide anti-immigrant. At the same time, there's some rays of hope. So I went to the mayor's office of immigrant affairs, not because I wanted to one day work in local government. That was not, I didn't know what I wanted to do, right? I wanted to uh, carry uh, luggage for people <laughs> so they could give me a tip. I didn't know what I was going to do. But um, I saw at the mayor's office of immigrant affairs in New York City that you can have localities create programs and create policies that are welcoming. And you can do that as a nation. But when the nation is not doing that, you can do it at the local level. So I've seen that happen. As to why people are coming, well, one of the biggest things that I think is important for all of us to think about, again, if we put ourselves in the other shoes, if we had kids and our kids were constantly threatened by gangs, for example, that's the case in Central America, that's the case in El Salvador, that's the case in Honduras, I, as a mother, would do anything I could to get my kid out as opposed to have them be recruited and then be killed, right? Because that's what's happening. I can tell you that my husband has had family members who have been killed by gangs, Mm -hmm. right? Is that where he wants to raise his child? Not at all. So we know that that's happening. So people from Central America who are riding that train, it's called the beast, La Bestia, they're not doing it for fun. It is not a Six Flags ride. It is like a life or death experience. And when you have the women and when you have the children coming, they're not doing it for fun. They're doing it because they have no other alternative. That's Central America. But when you think about other areas of the world, one of the things that has been incredible to me is that we know that in Yemen, 
things are really bad. We know that in the Middle East, like people are really facing war. But what has been our response under this administration is to close our doors. And we have said, and I see it, uh, you know, now in the position that I have, we see a lot of immigration cases. And I see a lot of families from Yemen that come to us and say, my husband has been waiting to get a visa, a family visa, to reunite with my family for two years. But they're not allowed to come in because of the travel ban. They've been in something called administrative processing, which means we don't know when we're going to let you in. It's all for security reasons. Is that really the case? And you know, one case that really haunts me every day is there's this m- mother. She has two children. One is on the way, so she's pregnant. The other one is a, a young son. And she says, I want my children to know their father. I need their father to be here with me. I can be going back and forth to Yemen, and yet there's nothing we can tell them. We can't tell them, well, if you just wait five more months, that's when it's going to happen, yeah. because the answer we get is we just don't know. Yeah, wow. Wow. I mean, obviously, every country has to have laws to regulate and, 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 and monitor immigration, but America's laws are, what, 20, 30 years old. Um, you're now deeply involved in Congress, obviously working for the Congresswoman. Uh, Are these laws fit for purpose anymore? Well, I would say two things. So it's not only that they're old, it's also how they get interpreted. It's Mm -hmm. how they get implemented. Because from what was happening in the previous administration to what is happening now, there hasn't been a lot of change in the law. Mm -hmm. What has changed is interpretation of the law. And then there's a a lot of legal, a lot of leeway in terms of like what you're going to do with your policies as as to the implementation. So whereas the previous administration, for example, said, well, we're going to protect the children or we're going to protect families. And so unless there's a real reason why they should be deported, we're not going to prioritize them for deportation. This administration I said, no, we're going to deport everybody. We're going to separate a mother from her baby because that's that's how we're going to make a statement as to what we're standing for. So a lot of it, some of it is the law, but a lot of it is much more beyond the law. Well, so that's, uh, uh, in a sense, that means there's no magic bullet. There's no way to make a quick change to the law to, to improve the situation in any way. Yeah, well, that and also because immigration is a matter of life. It's a matter Mm -hmm. of fact worldwide, not just in the United States. I lived in France where you have African immigrants coming to France because of the ties that once once upon they were colonized. African countries were colonized. So that's how that began. The immigration of Mexican people to the United States was created because we asked people to come here to work for us, the mm-hmm. Bracero program, sure. right? The immigration of Central Americans to the United States was created when we supported civil wars in those countries and so people had nowhere to go. So immigration is something that is a matter of just being part of the world. Mm. And so to just close ourselves and say, well, too bad, so sad, that's just not being human. Yeah. And, you know, part of the answer, I think, is going to be with people like yourself, obviously, and people like your boss, um, the congresswoman, yeah. taking positions of power, but not just passing you know, legislation or, or changing policy, but just being there. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I worked in Congress about, uh, <laughs> same as you, like, oh, more than two decades ago. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, it wasn't a particularly welcoming place for a young white woman, let alone a Latino. Mm-hmm. So when I saw, Latina, sorry, when I saw uh, her dance her way into her congressional office, yes. my, my goosebumps still come up. Yes. I, my heart sang. I just thought, yeah. oh my goodness. So I guess what, I, what I'm curious about is I, I'm impressed by the vigor of her, her policy agenda, and I'm impressed by many things about her. I think she's fearless. But I'm very much impressed by the way she's just kind of blowing air into the political system, uh, in a, in a, blowing fresh air in. And I wonder, though, uh, do you think that she's a um, uh, a unique 
person, or do you think she's opened the door to what's possible in politics for Latinas and Latinos and, and, and other underrepresented groups? That's right. Um, so I can tell you, before coming to the Congresswoman's office, I was happily doing my job at the Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs. I wanted to help immigrants, and that's what I was doing. But, you know, and, and I'm much older than the Congresswoman. Uh, but seeing what she did, seeing somebody who's coming from a working-class background and yet being able to say, you know, I'm here at the table and I'm going to speak up, I think that what she's done is she's now allowed many other people who didn't feel that they had that opportunity to say, oh, well, in fact, I do, because the way she won is really by knocking on doors and getting to know the community and the community getting to know her. Yeah. So I I think that what she showed was, listen, if we band together, if we as a community say we want to be represented, we will. And so that's what's really exciting about this moment is that I do think many other people are saying, well, I can do it too. And one of the things that for me is super refreshing, I really, I have to tell you that I am super happy. I told you that when I was in college, I was trying to figure out where am I going to go now, right now, yeah. now that I have opportunities, there's all these opportunities. And that was something that, that was happening throughout. I am at the moment where I feel like I'm really fulfilling my purpose. And I feel that that's the way with her office and our team just really like, we're there not for a title. We're there not for whatever prestige that brings. We're there because we want to represent people like us. We want to make sure that other people have the opportunity, whether that is a Latinx person, whether that is a black person, whether that is a working person, a bartender, anybody should be able to have doors open for them to be part of this discourse that affects them, yeah. heavily affects them. Yeah, and part of the political system more actively, too. Yes. So I'm wondering, since you are district direct director, you're out there on the streets, right? Mm -hmm. Are you seeing people? Are you seeing this in real time? Are you seeing people yes. becoming more inspired yes. to join the political system? Because a lot of people have felt quite alienated, I think, yeah. for many, uh, well, probably generations. Yeah. Do you see that? Yeah, I can tell you that one of the things that is really exciting is to see people feeling like they're welcomed. So when they come to our office first, I mean, even the physical space that we have created was very purposefully thought out to be a welcoming space, a community space. So people come in and they don't feel afraid and they come in and they're like, I have all these problems and they feel free to come to us and say, how can you help me? And so, yes, I see it all the time. I think most people don't feel like they can go to a congressional office because they don't know what it is. They have, they see her on TV. They see her everywhere. So they come to us and they say, I have all these problems. Sometimes we can't help them, but we definitely make sure that we can connect them. And that's really exciting to see a population that says, that's my congresswoman. And what I know that what that means is that she's there to help me and I'm going to go ask for help. And I hope they run for office too. Yes. You see some of that. Great. Yes. Well, we are actually really running out of time. I, I want to say thank you so much for coming in during reunions, by the way, <laughs> Maribel. Um, I, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, you know, to whoever is listening out there, because I know there's a wide range of listeners, I hope that that person, too, gets inspired and, and is able to see I can fulfill my purpose, whatever that is. Thank you very, very much. I hope so, too. And I hope our listeners will come back soon to listen to another interview with another change-making woman from Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.